Hello, my name is President Trimpo, and you are listening to In the West Wing, a political history podcast brought to you by WKNC 88.1. And in this week's episode, we will take a look at the escalation of tensions over the issue of American chattel slavery in the 1850s, the collapse of the Whig Party, and the reorientation of American political parties, and one man's crusade against slavery. So where we left off, America had successfully conquered a vast portion of the, uh, of the Southwest uh, from Mexico. Uh, and in the election of 1848, uh, Whig candidate Zachary Taylor uh, would be elected, defeating the split Democratic Party between Lewis Cass and free soil candidate Martin Van Buren. And despite the fact that uh, Taylor's campaign had been fairly apolitical and, and sort of non-ideological in its messaging, uh, the fact of the matter was, no matter what he did, or what any candidate would have done, the biggest issue was the institution of slavery. And whether or not the newly uh, acquired territories in from, from the Mexican session uh, would be admitted as free or slave states. Now, now first of all, Southern politicians generally favored keeping the newly acquired territories as federal territories that would be organized and sort of administered by Congress. And that was essentially a ploy in order to uh, exert greater control over the slave policies uh, of the newly acquired territories. Um, However, Northerners uh, generally favored sort of circumventing the, the, the step of having the territories organized federally uh, and have them be directly administered as new free states. Um, and despite the fact that President Taylor uh, was a Southerner from the state of Louisiana who owned slaves on his own plantation, uh, he generally favored the Northern position and was actually opposed to the expansion of slavery into the Southwest. Uh, now, the reasons for this are complicated um, and not entirely clear what his personal reasoning was. Uh, however, it, it seems that he, he just believed that economically the institution of American slavery, which just wouldn't be viable in the very dry and arid Southwest. And more importantly, he believed that um, by allowing these new territories or potentially states uh, to practice slavery, it would only divide the country even further. Um, And while Congress was trying to reach a compromise on the issue, uh, Taylor increasingly became agitated with Southern Democrats who who were the most vocal about um, forcing the issue of slavery onto these territories. Um, And so uh, in response to this, uh, Taylor publicly threatened to sign the Wilmot Proviso. Now, the, the Wilmot Proviso had been uh, proposed, uh, and I believe 1846, in the middle of the uh, Mexican-American War, and it was suggested by uh, Pennsylvania Democratic Congressman David Wilmot. Um, now, Wilmot, while being a Democrat, uh, was part of the barn burner faction that, that was opposed to the expansion of slavery. And essentially, uh, his proviso 
uh, stated that um, uh, in, in any territory that was acquired from Mexico, quote, to the acquisition of any territory from the Republic of Mexico by the United States by virtue of any treaty which may be negotiated between them and to use by the executive of the monies herein appropriated, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall ever exist in any part of said territory except for crime, whereof the party shall first be duly convicted. Now, this was a, a hardline stance on the issue of slavery for Taylor to take. And it really, quite honestly, took quite a few people off guard. They just didn't expect it from him. Uh, And as Congress tried to reach a compromise, Taylor's position made the entire debate all the more complicated and and sort of was more of a roadblock than anything. Um, But that wouldn't be for terribly long uh, because on July 4th, 1850, only a little bit more than a year after his inauguration, uh, at a at a Fourth of July celebration, uh, Taylor ate a large bowl of cherries and drank iced milk. The story is then because of that uh, he he got sick and died. Um, whatever the case is, uh, shortly after uh, that Fourth of July celebration, Taylor developed a a severe uh, digestive tract illness. Uh, and in the following days developed a a, a serious fever uh, until on the night of July 9th, 1850, uh, President Taylor died at age 65. Most likely, this illness was cholera or some form of dysentery, as as both were endemic uh, to the Washington, D.C. area at the time. Uh, More than likely, it was not the cherries or the milk itself, probably tainted in some way. Um, But the point is... Taylor dies, uh, and he is the second president to die in office. Um, but unlike with the death of uh, uh, William Henry Harrison, there is no real debate over whether or not his vice president, Millard Fillmore, becomes president. Uh, now, Millard Fillmore ascends to the presidency. Um, he was a northern Whig uh, from the state of New York. He was the former comptroller of the state. And... Uh, and he was sort of seen as sort of an olive branch to the northern wing of the party uh, to go and balance the ticket against the southern uh, Taylor. Um, but unlike Taylor, uh, Fillmore was actually much more in favor of compromise on the issue of slavery. Uh, and shortly after ascending to the presidency, uh, he would dismiss the entire cabinet appointed by Taylor. Uh, and, and essentially, Fillmore worked with those in favor of the compromise uh, and with after much jockeying within the Senate, uh, the infamous compromise of 1850 would be passed in a series of bills. This compromise led to then uh, all of California being admitted as a single free state. Um, Texas would end its claims on the New Mexico, New Mexico territory in exchange for debt relief. And the newly organized federal territories of Utah and New Mexico uh, would be uh, organized, allowing the institution of slavery. Additionally, um, a stronger Fugitive Slave Act would be passed and enforced by the Congress. Uh, And really, those who were both opposed to the institution of slavery and those who were in favor of the institution of slavery really were very unhappy with this compromise. And they, they both sides sort of believed that, that the, the compromise went too far in the opposite direction. Um, but most political moderates generally agreed that, the, that this compromise was necessary and would save 
the Union and preserve its unity. One of the provisions of the Compromise of 1850 uh, was the newly enacted Fugitive Slave Act. Uh, There had been previous Fugitive Slave Acts, but they had never been enforced on a large scale, and the punishments were not that severe. This new act demanded that escaped slaves be returned to those who owned them and placed a $1,000 fine on any authority who did not arrest a suspected escaped slave. And I think most importantly about this act is that unlike the previous Fugitive Slave Acts, this one required free states to enforce the act. Additionally, uh, individuals who were accused of being escaped slaves could not testify on their own behalf in court. Uh, they wouldn't even be granted a jury. Uh, and the captors who, who had captured them and accused them of being an escaped slave would be financially rewarded regardless if whether or not the person was actually a free person or an escaped slave. Now, I have to say, most Northerners at this point in time were not abolitionist, but this really really aggravated Northerners and sort of spurred a growth of anti-slavery sentiment, even even within those who maybe didn't believe that the institution of slavery needed to be abolished. Uh, and I think I think this this act really struck a lot of fear in the hearts of those who who had escaped the institution of slavery. Uh, John Brown, who who was an abolitionist uh, from the state of Massachusetts at the time, uh, stated that that escaped slaves in his local abolitionist community of Springfield, Massachusetts, um, that, quote, Some of them are so alarmed that they tell me they cannot sleep on account of either them or their wives and their children. Now, despite the act's unpopularity, Fillmore believed that it was his presidential duty to zealously enforce the Fugitive Slave Act. And this really alienated northern anti-slavery Whigs, uh, while southern uh, members of his own party continued to complain that it was just not being enforced strongly enough. Now, the issue of slavery was not the only issue on Fillmore's plate uh, at the time, but I think it's the most important. Um, Additionally, uh, there was sort of a, a, a foreign policy push Uh, by the Fillmore uh, administration um, to sort of reorient American interest towards the Pacific uh, as had sort of first begun under the presidency of John Tyler. Uh, And I think aside from the Compromise of 1850, I think one of the uh, other very notable events uh, of Fillmore's presidency uh, was the infamous Perry Expedition um, in which uh, uh, President Fillmore ordered... uh, Commodore Perry, um, a a member of the U.S. Navy, uh, to essentially uh, send an expedition of American gunboats uh, to the Tokugawa shogunate in Japan uh, and essentially force the isolationist Japanese regime uh, to finally open up the country to foreign trade, um, which would in the long term have have very important effects uh, on um, American uh, Pacific foreign policy. But for the purpose of this episode, I'm going to kind of gloss over it for now. So really, aside from from this and the Compromise of 1850, um, I would say Fillmore's presidency was entirely unremarkable. Uh, and I would even go so far as to say he had a poor presidency. He did not do well in the office uh, because his enforcement 
of the Fugitive Slave Act and his attempt at compromise uh, only served to drive the entire party apart. He His effort to sort of create sort of a national consensus and sort of unite the two wings of his party really only served to make both sides angry and drive the Whig party apart. Uh, and we see this then in the election of 1852. Uh, in the election of 1852, uh, the Whig party had become incredibly bitterly divided. Uh, and while Fillmore attempted to run for re-election uh, on his own merits as, as, as president, um, he, that would just not come to be uh, because uh, General Winfield Scott uh, would secure the party's nomination, uh, while Democrats uh, faced similar divisions between the different factions. Um, they eventually settled on the compromise candidate of Franklin Pierce of New Hampshire. Uh, Franklin Pierce was a Northern Democrat. He he was young. He was handsome. Uh, he he was sort of seen as this very charismatic figure uh, from the North, which you know was very popular from that wing of the party. But most importantly, he was what what um, people describe as a doe face, uh, which essentially describes a northern politician who is friendly towards the positions of southern slaveholders. Uh, so really, in this election cycle, the Whig Party under Scott really failed to differentiate their party platform in any major policy way uh, between themselves and the Democratic Party. And ultimately... Their attempt at running another war hero just doesn't work um, because also Scott was sort of seen as sort of this anti-slavery candidate in some ways. He had this sort of reputation of being the sort of northerner that was less favorable, favorable on the expansion of slavery, which really harmed his chances among traditional southern Whigs. And so ultimately, uh, Franklin Pierce is able to defeat Scott. 254 to 42 in the Electoral College. Uh, and Whigs, the Whig Party really just took a severe beating in this election cycle, um, really only carrying their traditional sort of Whig strongholds of Vermont, Massachusetts, Kentucky, and Tennessee. But despite this, this absolute walloping uh, on the election cycle of 1852, um, the Whigs sort of believed that they could that they could kind of continue as this this strong political force into the future and sort of recover from this defeat. Uh, but as we will see, that simply was not the case. Before Franklin Pierce's presidency even began, his entire administration would be one shrouded in failure and grief. Uh, that is because shortly after um, his successful election to the presidency, uh, uh, President-elect Pierce would be traveling with his entire family on a train, uh, traveling out of Boston. Um, the train would be derailed, uh, and while Pierce and his wife would survive, uh, his only son would be crushed to death uh, in the ensuing train accident. Uh, and as a result, both Pierce and his wife were in a deep, deep depression. Uh, his own wife would not attend uh, his presidential inauguration, uh, and Pierce refused to swear um, the oath of office on a Bible. Instead, he affirmed his oath uh, on a law book. Uh, this was because he believed that in some way, God was punishing him for seeking the office of the presidency. And maybe he wasn't all that wrong. Uh, the biggest issue 
uh, of Pierce's administration was the same issue that had plagued Taylor and Millard Fillmore's presidencies, and that was slavery. Um, Pierce really hoped that the Compromise of 1850 had put the entire issue to rest. You know, he, he thought, you know, this compromise is reached. We don't have to address it again. That's that. Um, but that simply was not the case. Uh, and we see this uh, in the debate over the Nebraska Territory. Uh, essentially, a huge stretch of the Great Plains had been just sort of this unorganized federal territory west of Missouri. It was this huge stretch stretching from uh, the modern states of Kansas all the way up to the Dakotas. Uh, but Pierce was a proponent of a transcontinental railroad. He believed that the, uh, in order for uh, America to prosper into the future, uh, the eastern and western coasts of the United States needed to be connected by a railroad. Uh, and a railroad could only be constructed passing through the Great Plains if the Nebraska Territory would be organized into a federal territory rather than just sort of the state of sort of unorganized lawlessness that existed at the time. And it's important to say that the Nebraska Territory um, was north of the 36th and 30th parallel, uh, which had been set by the Missouri Compromise. Um, so essentially, that meant that the territories, should they be organized, had to be uh, free of the institution of slavery. Uh, but Southern congressmen refused to acquiesce to the organization of new territories unless they were sort of given some concessions on the issue of slavery. And so, in 1854... Um, Senator Stephen Douglas of Illinois, a Democrat, uh, proposed a solution. The Nebraska Territory would be split into the Kansas Territory and the Nebraska Territory. And the two territories uh, would have a system of popular sovereignty in which this population of both territories would be able to vote on whether or not they wanted to embrace slavery or reject it. Uh, now, on paper... This maybe seems like an okay idea. Um, these are northern territories. There's a good chance that they would have sort of an anti-slavery population, and it would just kind of be just a bit of lip service um, to southern politicians. Uh, but Pierce was hesitant to embrace this. Uh, and this hesitancy was was because President Pierce believed uh, that by um, enacting this this Kansas-Nebraska Act, um, it would only enrage Northerners in much the same way the Fugitive Slave Act had done. Uh, but eventually, he would agree to it as a, a sort of ring of Southern politicians within his cabinet uh, really pressured him into believing that it was a good idea. Chiefly among these cabinet ministers was Secretary of War Jefferson Davis, a name which we will hear quite a lot bit more from in the future. And upon the act being proposed, Bitter debate would follow. Um, Southerners nearly unanimously supported the act, while northern uh, politicians were really very seriously divided. Both Whigs and Democrats from the North were appalled by what this would mean um, because they recognized that it was violating the Missouri Compromise, which had been set in stone. It was sort of uh, political gospel at this point that you could not violate the Missouri Compromise. And if the Missouri Compromise is being rolled back, what else could be rolled back? 
uh, and I think one of the the um, uh, leading examples of a pro-slavery Democrat being opposed to this because he recognized how severely dangerous this would be uh, was Congressman Thomas Hart Benton, the former senator of Missouri and a lifelong Democrat and slave owner. Benton was among those opposed to the act, saying, quote, What is the excuse for all this turmoil and mischief? We are told it is to keep the question of slavery out of Congress. Great God. It was out of Congress completely, entirely, and forever out of Congress, unless Congress dragged it in by breaking down the sacred laws which settled it. Now, despite this bipartisan opposition, uh, the act would be signed into law on May 30th, 1854. And this would kickstart a total political realignment of federal politics over the issue of slavery. Essentially, as a reaction to this, Northern Whigs, Northern Democrats, members of the Free Soil Party, members of the Liberty Party, all united in their opposition to the expansion of slavery, uh, would realign themselves as they believed that that the proponents uh, of slavery uh, were forcing the institution further and further north, uh, and that politicians from both parties were just not adequately addressing the entire issue. Uh, and from this, you know, united opposition to slavery, these Northern Democrats, these Northern Whigs, these Free Soilers would come together and form the Republican Party. And in the midterms of 1854, uh, they would participate in their first national election. And almost immediately after the Kansas-Nebraska Act was passed, uh, the issues that uh, those opposed to the act uh, said would arise did. And this would begin what is now known today as Bleeding Kansas. Now, the Nebraska Territory was further north of the two, uh, and it was really very solidly set on becoming a new free territory and free state. Um But Kansas was different. It was further south, and it bordered the slave state of Missouri. And it really seemed that the majority of settlers would come from Missouri and be in favor of slavery. But immediately there was this this very sudden rush of settlers to the territory um, because both pro- and anti-slavery activists wanted to essentially put their thumbs on the scale, just tip the territory into becoming either a free or slave state. And essentially, both sides would put forward their own versions of state constitutions uh, and their own slates of state uh, legislatures. Uh, And as a result, paramilitary groups would eventually start popping up, uh, uh, specifically uh, from Missouri. Those called border ruffians uh, would cross the border to intimidate anti-slavery advocates uh, and would illegally vote in fraudulent elections to push their pro-slavery agenda. And I'm not saying this is like, oh, you know, these these people who I disagree with were were committing electoral fraud. It's well documented that that um, people from Missouri were illegally crossing the border and lying about being residents of Kansas, voting in elections, and then immediately crossing the border back into uh, Missouri. Uh, and as political tensions rose within the territory, um, it would eventually escalate into outright violence. And on November twenty first, eighteen fifty five. A pro-slavery settler named Franklin Coleman would shoot and kill his free state neighbor, Charles W. Dow. 
This was the first of many politically motivated killings in the territory, uh, and it would sort of be seen as, as the first shot in bleeding Kansas. The Republican senator from Massachusetts, Charles Sumner, uh, would deliver a scathing speech against what he described as the crime against Kansas. Um, and using very coarse language, um, using imagery of, of sexual violence uh, to sort of describe this, this rise of pro-slavery forces in the territory, uh, would say in his speech on the Senate floor, quote, not in any common lust for power did this uncommon tragedy have its origin. It is the rape of a virgin territory, compelling it to the hateful embrace of slavery, and it may be clearly traced to a depraved desire for a new slave state, hideous offspring of such a crime, and the hope of adding to the power of slavery in the national government. Two days after delivering his speech titled The Crime Against Kansas, um, Representative Preston Brooks of South Carolina uh, would approach Charles Sumner at his desk. Uh, Brooks was a cousin of, of Senator uh, Andrew Butler, who had been personally insulted by Sumner in his speech. Uh, and uh, quietly, Representative Brooks would say to uh, Senator Sumner, quote, Mr. Sumner, I have read your speech twice over carefully. It is a libel on South Carolina and Mr. Butler who is a relative of mine. Before Sumner could respond, uh, Brooks proceeded to beat Sumner with his cane. Uh, Sumner would fall under his desk, uh, trapped under the bolted furniture, uh, and Brooks would not stop. As senators rushed to Sumner's aid, the two congressmen that had flanked Brooks uh, drew pistols and threatened those uh, preventing them from assisting Sumner. Blinded by the blood coming off of his head, Sumner would eventually stumble away from the desk, and Brooks would continue beating Sumner until his cane finally broke in half. Sumner was totally bedridden for months, unable to serve out his duties as senator from the state of Massachusetts. And with physical wounds, and I think more importantly, psychological damage that we today would understand as post-traumatic stress disorder, um, prevented Sumner from serving out his senatorial duties until three years later in 1859. And to many in the North, he would become a martyr, uh, seen as, as a victim of Southern violence. And on the other hand, Southerners applauded Bro uh, Representative Brooks's actions and would, uh, for many, many years, continue mailing him uh, canes as replacements for the ones, uh, for the one that he broke over Sumner's head. Um, editor William Cullen Bryant of the New York po Evening Post uh, uh, wrote in an editorial saying, quote, Has it come to this, that we must speak with bated breath in the presence of our Southern masters? Are we to be chastised as they chastise their slaves? Are we too slaves, slaves for life, a target for their brutal blows when we do not comport ourselves to please them? News of Sumner's caning spread like wildfire. And it really galvanized the anti-slavery movement across the country. Among those who were impacted by hearing about Sumner's caning uh, was John Brown. Now he was a settler in Kansas, joined by his adult sons. Uh, and facing escalating violence from pro-slavery advocates, 
most notably the sacking of the um, uh, pro-anti-slavery uh, city of Lawrence, Kansas. Uh, Brown would learn of both the sacking of Lawrence uh, and Ca Charles Sumner's caning on the same day. Uh, and with that, the final straw broke. Brown would organize a raid the night of May 24th, 1856, joined by his adult sons and several other anti-slavery advocates. Um, Sumner would, in the night, uh, abduct five pro-slavery men from their homes and murder them. This became known as the Pottawatomie Massacre. Um, this is complicated. Uh, this was vigilante violence, uh, but it was vigilante violence in the cause of uh, the freedom of other human beings. Uh, and this would set him on a course of violent action against slavery uh, as he would become an outlaw fleeing from the Kansas Territory uh, eastward. So with escalating violence in bleeding Kansas, the deeply unpopular President Pierce would not be renominated. Instead, James Buchanan would be nominated. He was another northern doughface, this time from the state of Pennsylvania, and had been floated as a presidential hopeful in the previous uh, few uh, presidential cycles. Uh, but this, I think, importantly, was the first election uh, since its inception that the Republican Party would, would field a candidate in. Um, specifically, they would nominate uh, former war hero of the Mexican-American War uh, and sort of... Um, and one of the first senators from the new state of California, John C. Fremont. Um, and really, the Republican platform was, was organized entirely on the basis of opposing the expansion of slavery into Kansas and Nebraska, uh, with their uh, campaign slogan uh, in 1856 being free speech, free press, free soil, free men, and Fremont for victory. However, I think it's important to say that there were still the remnants of the old Whig Party, those who maybe didn't join the Republican cause but were still too um, alienated against the Democratic Party. Uh, and these sort of leftover Whigs, as I think you could kind of describe them, uh, would instead hope to cling to a national consensus, a, a sort of... A, a political party that could bridge the divide still between North and South that was growing ever, ever wider. Uh, and they would organize into the Know Nothing organization, uh, which was a rabidly xenophobic and anti-Catholic group, uh, which would form what would then be called the American Party. Um, essentially, they thought that they could sort of create a, a, a nationally popular party um, that would just sort of totally ignore the biggest issue of the time, which was slavery. Uh, and this new American party uh, would nominate former Whig president Millard Fillmore as their only uh, presidential candidate. Um, but ultimately, Fillmore's entire campaign would entirely fall flat. Uh, Fillmore would only successfully win in the state of Maryland. Uh, Buchanan would sweep the entire South uh, while Fremont did much better in the North, he, he swept um, New England, uh, he captured New York, uh, and the upper uh, Great Lakes region. So uh, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, Ohio. But ultimately, the Republican Party would fail to win the election of 1856. Uh, as Buchanan was able to successfully paint the entire party, 
uh, as just too radical. Uh, And many voters at the time felt that they were too radical. Again, like Presidents Pierce, Fillmore, and Taylor, the biggest issue of Buchanan's presidency would be slavery. Uh, The first big incident in his uh, administration would be the Dred Scott case. Um, President Buchanan had been in close contact with conservative members of the Supreme Court. uh, And in the early months of 1857, and the Supreme Court ruled in Dred Scott v. Sanford uh, that Scott, who was an enslaved man from the state of Missouri who had been brought to the state of Illinois, uh, could not be granted American citizenship. Uh, Scott attempted to sue his master, claiming that he became free upon entering a free state. Uh, But the court ruled that uh, as a black man, Scott could not be a citizen and did not enjoy constitutional rights. Um, And additionally, this case would uh, prevent the federal government from prohibiting slavery in any federal territory. Uh, And as a doe face, Buchanan would forcefully support the ruling, uh, which would just entirely enrage increasingly anti-slavery Northerners. This paired with an economic crash in 1857 caused Buchanan's approval ratings to bottom out uh, within his first year in office, and his popularity would fail to ever recover entirely. Now, after becoming a fugitive in the Kansas Territory, uh, John Brown would flee uh, eastwards uh, and would... um, in Missouri, organize a slave escape in which he would help 11 enslaved people uh, escape and cross the border into Canada. Uh, And now he found himself in the state of Virginia. Brown believed that slavery could only be ended through a violent revolution in the same vein as as the Haitian Revolution uh, or, or um, or Nat Turner's Revolt, which happened several decades earlier. Uh, And essentially... Brown would organize a band of 22 people, um, 17 white men, five black men. Uh, Included among them were his adult sons, free black men, and escaped slaves. Uh, And the plan was to capture the federal arsenal at Harper's Ferry, Virginia. Um, Brown attempted to convince Frederick Douglass to assist in sort of uh, encouraging an uprising, Um, uh, but ultimately Douglass refused. Uh, There's reason to believe Brown may have been in contact uh, with Harriet Tubman. uh, And the plan, from what I understand, was that Brown um, hoped that um, Tubman would spread the word that um, uh, Brown was capturing the federal arsenal uh, and that uh, slaves would escape from their masters and join with him. uh, And and their arms, the arms captured at the arsenal would be distributed amongst the escaped slaves. Um, Uh, and would essentially initiate a a guerrilla war against slaveholders in the state of Virginia. Um, And so uh, Brown captured uh, several hostages, um, one of them being the the, uh, uh, great-grandnephew of George Washington. Um, And uh, they sort of set themselves up to hold and capture the armory at Harper's Ferry. Um, Very quickly, however, local slaveholders would quickly catch word of the attack, and a massive mob would surround the arsenal, uh, and within a short order, federal troops were quickly sent in, headed by a certain Robert E. Lee. 
After a two-day siege, half of the raiders were killed in combat, and among them were two of John Brown's sons, Oliver and Watson Brown. The remainder, including John Brown, would be captured and placed on trial for their crimes against the state of Virginia. Um, there really was a very strong case for this to be a, a um, trial in a federal court. However, the governor of Virginia really wanted to make an example of John Brown and sort of radical abolitionism. Um, and so instead, he would be tried for treason against the state of Virginia. On November 2nd, 1859, at his sentencing, Brown would be found guilty and sentenced to hanging. Uh, but after his sentencing, uh, he would be asked by the clerk if there was any reason that his sentence should not be imposed, as was customary in Virginia courtrooms at the time. Brown, who was severely injured from the fighting, uh, was in a cot during the entire uh, trial. Uh, but to deliver his remarks, uh, he would rise from his cot um, and deliver one of the most powerful speeches in American history uh, and said, quote, I have, may it please the court, a few words to say. In the first place, I deny everything but what I have all along admitted, the design on my part to free the slaves. I intend certainly to have made a clean thing of that matter, as I did last winter, when I went to Missouri and there took the slaves without the snapping of the gun on either side, moved them through the country, and finally left them in Canada. I designed to have done the same thing again on a larger scale. That was all I intended. I never did intend murder or treason or the destruction of property or to excite or incite slaves to rebellion or to make insurrection. I have another objection, and that is it is unjust that I should suffer such a penalty. Had I interfered in the manner which I admit, and which I admit has been fairly proved, for I admire the truthfulness and candor of the great portion of witnesses who have testified in this case, had I so interfered in behalf of the rich, the powerful, the intelligent, the so-called great, or in behalf of any of their friends, either father, mother, brother, sister, wife, or children, or any of that class, and suffered and sacrificed what I have for this interference, it would have been all right, and every man in this court would have deemed it an act worthy of reward rather than punishment. This court acknowledges, as I suppose, the validity of the law of God. I see a book kissed here, which I suppose to be the Bible, or at least the New Testament. That teaches me that all things whatsoever I would that men should do to me, I should do even so to them. It teaches me further to remember them that are in bonds, as bound with them. I endeavored to act upon that instruction. I say, I am yet too young to understand that God is any respecter of persons. I believe that to have interfered as I have done, as I have always freely admitted I have done, in behalf of his despised poor, was not wrong, but right. Now, if it is deemed necessary that I should forfeit my life, for the furtherance of the ends of justice, and mingle my blood further with the blood of my children and the blood of millions in this slave country whose rights are disregarded by wicked, cruel, and unjust enactments. I submit, so let it be done. John Brown would be hanged December 2nd, refusing to be ministered to by a pro-slavery priest. Uh, shortly before his death, he left a note to his jailer uh, simply reading, quote, I, John Brown, am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land 
will never be purged away but with blood. I had, as I now think, vainly flattered myself that without very much bloodshed, it might be done. And with that, John Brown was right. The institution of slavery would only come to an end after four bloody years of American Civil War. But we're not quite there yet in American history. As always, I have been your host, President Trampo, and you have been listening to In the West Wing, political history podcast brought to you by WKNC 88.1. And in the next episode, we will take a look at the election of 1860 and the rise of Abraham Lincoln. Special thanks to those who helped give history a voice in this week's episode of In the West Wing, with Justin Kern as David Wilmot, DJ Reggie as Thomas Hart Benton, Spencer Groton as Charles Sumner, Daniel Turk as Preston Brooks, Caitlin Carroll as William Cullen Bryant, and Sarah Hernando as John Brown. The intro music used on In the West Wing is Star Spangled Banner by the United States Marine Band, and our outro is Libertad by Iriarte and Pessoa. 